Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 10. Psalm 10 will be the psalm that we are in this morning as we continue to make our way through the book of Psalms. We come to a a new section, a new grouping of psalms that spans from Psalm 10 to uh, roughly Psalm 15. A lot of the same themes are going to be found throughout. Um, Same themes you find in Psalm 10 are going to be especially present in Psalm 14, where again we see the wicked saying in his heart that there, there is no God, the fool saying in his heart. And uh, Psalm 10 is uh, picking up on this, this very theme as well, uh, describing the wickedness of the human heart, the self-deception, the lies that it tells itself that God will never find out its evil deeds. David here is lamenting over this, but as we will see, ultimately trusting in and hoping in the sovereign reign of the Lord that he will establish justice on earth. So we will begin by reading together from Psalm 10. We'll read the whole psalm together, verse 1 down to verse 18. Beginning in verse 1, we read, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. But the wicked boast of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and depression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed sink down and fall by His might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden His face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up Your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account, but you do see. For you note mischief and vexation. 
that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, it was long ago that your servant David himself endured many afflictions, many persecutors who sought to kill him for no cause at all except for their own pride, their own hunger for power, their bloodthirstiness. This has also been the story of your people throughout the ages. Your prophets were persecuted. Jesus, your son, was unjustly crucified on a Roman cross. And he speaks indeed of the blessedness of all of those who follow Him and who likewise are persecuted because in the same way the prophets before them were persecuted. Your people have known throughout the ages what it is to be afflicted and in that affliction they cry out to you and they cry out to you because you are King and you have promised that you will establish your justice your people look to you and they hope to you for righteousness to reign forever and ever and for all sin and evil to once for all be vanquished forever. And in the same way, Lord, we hope in those same promises. We know that because Christ has been exalted at your right hand from which point he reigns even now he will reign both now and forever and he will come again to establish the fullness of his kingdom on earth lord we read a psalm like this and it's very easy for us to to see all of the sin that's in the world and the sin that's in other people's hearts, but this is a psalm that also shines a light on what resides within us. That even we who have been united to Christ by faith and who've been given the Spirit have that old man that still dwells within us and who is characterized by this unbelief. So I pray, Lord, that as we heed the words of this psalm, we would not only take hope and comfort in knowing 
that your kingdom will prevail, but that you will also humble us as we see the darkness that is within and we would repent. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the uh, Puritan, Stephen Charnock's book, The Existence and Attributes of God, which has been recently republished in a two-volume edition by Crossway, very beautiful, highly recommended. Um, it is a, a great work. But in it, he, he starts off by addressing the issue or the question of God's existence. And the atheist's intellectual denial of it. He was writing, providing an apologetic, a biblical and philosophical and theological defense, the existence of God, particularly in light of some of the recent arguments that were sprouting up in his own day by men like Baruch Spinoza and Thomas Hobbes. But intellectual atheism was then, and still is now, really just a minority report. Even in our highly secularized society, where we try and get God out of every single facet of life, most people cannot escape the conclusion that there is a God. They may, of course, define Him in a thousand different ways. They may conclude that He's ultimately unknowable, but most people, even today, do not intellectually deny the existence of God. And of course, if you're a Christian, you believe the Word of God, that's not surprising. Men are made in the image of God. God has placed eternity within everyone's heart. As Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, the beauty, the complexity, the power of creation testifies to His existence, to His creative power. It glorifies Him. It sings His praise day by day. The Apostle Paul says that the invisible attributes of God, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Romans chapter 1. What do men do? What do they do with this knowledge? Well, in their sin, in their unrighteousness, they suppress the knowledge. They hold it down. It's screaming at them within their conscience. It's screaming at them within nature. But they, they, they turn a blind eye to it. They suppress it by their sin. And they exchange the truth about God for a lie. And they worship and serve the creature the created things, rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And this particular fact leads Charnock to write about the more important form of atheism, the more prevalent form 
of atheism. It's not the atheism of the mind. It's the atheism of the heart. It's the denial of God from within. It's what he calls practical atheism. Just as it is the case that every single doctrinal heresy, doctrinal deviation from the Word of God springs not from the mind just neutrally drawing erroneous conclusions, but rather begins as a moral failure, as a moral compromise. So also is it the case that intellectual atheism, the the professed denial of the existence of God springs ultimately from practical atheism, which is in the heart. And in the heart of every fallen man. Practical atheism is a heart disease. Man knows that there is a God. He knows that God is righteous. And that he will have to give an account for all his works. And because he knows this, because God has not left him without a witness, because he knows there is eternity, because he knows he will have to answer for his deeds, and the answer that he will give will find him guilty, because he knows these things, he hates the king. He hates the one who will stand in judgment over him. Charnock says that all outward impieties are the branches of an atheism at the root of our nature, as all pestilential sores are expressions of the contagion in the blood. All sin is at root practical atheism. All evil in the heart all rejecting what it knows to be true of God. All of this is a form of practical atheism. And it's present in the lives of everyone who rejects God and who rejects His Christ. But it's also still very much present even in the lives of Christians. It's the character of the old man. It is the sinful flesh that still dwells within us. If you are in Christ, you have of course been given the Spirit of God. You have been sealed as His own. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. But when you sin, when you transgress what you know, to be righteous and good and true and beautiful and honoring to God, it is the work of the sinful heart saying to itself, contrary to everything it knows, there is no God. He does not see. Every act of sin is an announcement to God that he will not hold account. Practical atheism is the heart in rebellion. 
It is the defining characteristic of all men apart from Christ, and it is that part of the Christian that must be vigorously fought against and killed every single day. Of course, to kill it, we must know it. We must shine the light of the truth of the Word of God on it. We must expose it. We must bring it out of hiding and then kill it with prayer and with the Word and with repentance and with the Gospel. So this morning, as we consider this subject, I want to begin as we look at the psalm by looking at the heart of the practical atheist. What are its characteristics? What are the lies that it tells itself and believes? What is its disposition toward God? And one of the things that we see about the heart of this practical atheism is that it despises God. It has a hatred for Him. There is no neutral position. David describes the practical atheist this way in verse 3. He says, For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses, which if you're reading in the SV, the, the footnote I think more accurately says he blesses the one greedy for gain. Many translations in, interpret this particular phrase as a kind of euphemism, and so that's why they're, they're going the opposite direction here. But he's, he's actually blessing. He's blessing the one who is greedy for, grain, for, for gain. Excuse me. Then I want you to notice lastly what he says in this verse. Verse 3. It says he renounces the Lord. He renounces Him. The idea is that the wicked knows God. He knows He exists. He knows who He is. But the wicked heart despises Him. Renounces Him. Rejects Him. It's the same exact word that's used in Numbers chapter 14, verse 11, for example, where the people of Israel, in that context, they know who God is. They've seen Him. They've seen His gracious, saving hand at work for them. They were in bondage, in brutal bondage, having their children slaughtered by the Egyptians. And they cried out to God for deliverance. And in His mercy and grace, He saved them. Not just, some, not just in some spiritual sense. He manifested His power and glory among them. He brought them out as a whole people out of Egypt. He led them through a parted sea. He led them through a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. You can only wonder at the kinds of things their eyes had seen. They, they go to Mount Sinai where He enters into a covenant with them. They see His power on the mountain. They hear His thunderous voice. 
They drop to the ground in fear at the power that they beheld. They had seen who He was. They had received His gracious words. They had been saved by His merciful hand. They knew Him. And they rebelled. They despised Him. There was no uncertainty or confusion over who God is or over His existence. But what did exist was a hardened heart towards Him. They accused Him of malice. They launched a slanderous charge against Him as they were not enjoying the comforts of slavery anymore, but were now in the wilderness having to rely on daily manna from the Lord. They began to complain and charged Him with the malicious intent of bringing them out of Egypt into the wilderness to kill them. That's what God wants to do. He wants to kill us. And when the Lord hears all of these charges against Him, His name being maligned, He said, how long will this people despise Me? Renounce Me? And how long will they not believe in Me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? That's the nature of the fallen, rebellious, atheistic heart. God can be right in front of you and you say to Him, I hate you. I despise you. It is at war against Him. And it is so bold in its hatred as to turn its nose up at Him. Verse 4 says, in the pride of His face, literally in, in accordance with the height of His nose, the wicked does not seek Him. All His thoughts are there is no God. And here it's as if the man is standing in the presence of God and daring him to act. It's just as when you could think of two men who are ready to fight with each other and they start bowing up against each other and turning their noses at one another's face, daring them to act. This atheistic heart convinces itself that God will not and cannot do anything to him. It is more demonic than the demons who tremble at his presence. It is a bold, willful rejection of his person. And in this arrogance, the heart also rejects all the words that God has given. It doesn't care about any of them. In verse 5, you see there, David uses a word that can either refer to 
strength or prosperity, or it can refer to the the writhing and twisting that happens when a woman gives birth to a child. And I think the latter is the case here. The ways of the wicked are twisted at all times. And David says further of them, your judgments, that is the the statutes of God, His Word, His law, His Torah, your judgments are on high, out of His sight. Word of God means nothing to him. It might as well be hidden away somewhere on the highest mountain. He has put it far from his mind. And if you bring it before him, you place it before him, you tell him these are the words of God, he will burn it. It's just like King Jehoiakim. Jeremiah 36, the prophecy of Jeremiah is brought to him. These these warnings that had been given generation after generation, even long before Jeremiah, that because of the sin of the people, because of the sin led by the king, in this case, Jehoiakim, Judgment is coming against the land. The curses of the law are coming. The Babylonians are coming to destroy Judah and Jerusalem. This may not be a message that the king wanted to hear, but it was true. It was intended to get the people and to get the king to repent before it was too late. Jeremiah sends his servant to bring this prophetic word to the king and the king has it read before him and as each third or fourth column is read he takes it in his hand he cuts it up and then he throws it into a fire to be burned that's the the disposition of the wicked heart towards the words of god i want them far from me It is not fundamentally that the atheistic heart does not understand the Word of God or know what is required of it. It is not that it is too high for the mind to comprehend. It's that he hates it. It's like the screeching of nails on a chalkboard. It offends him and it angers him. People hate the Bible. A lot of times, you you may hear people, especially within the broader world of Christendom, give lip service to the Bible. I I love the Bible. Yeah, the Bible's good. When's the last time you read it? 20 years ago. And then as soon as you, you bring up a matter that contradicts some belief they hold, or especially some action they are engaged in. The moment you say the the Word of God says that you, you must conduct your sexual life in the way that God has designed it to be, well, then you really see how much they love it. It's not at all. There's a hatred 
for it. The hearing of it arouses the wicked heart's fury. A prohibition is given and the sinful heart takes it as an opportunity to fan into flame all of the deeds that are prohibited. When Paul speaks of the sin nature that the, the, the sin that na- the, excuse me, the, the sinful nature of a man hearing the good and holy commandments of God, he describes its response to these good words in Romans 7. He says, for example, when the law says, "You shall not covet." Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. That's what it does. A good prohibition is given. You shall not murder. Typically, everyone can recognize that's good, right? At least nobody wants to be murdered themselves. But you hear a command, and sin, aroused by the goodness of the command, wants to fan into flame everything contrary to it. You hear that command, you shall not covet. And you want to covet everything. It is the pattern of the fallen man that goes all the way back to the garden. You hear a single prohibition. Like Adam and Eve. You can have all of the trees. The whole world is given to you. Enjoy the fruit of the garden. Don't eat of this one tree. What does a sinful heart want? It wants what has been prohibited. It takes the Word of God and it intentionally twists it so that all the ways of the wicked man become corrupt. Moreover, we find in this psalm the truth that the atheistic heart opposes the omnipotence and omniscience of God. It denies that God has the power to hold it accountable, nor the knowledge to find its deeds out. In verse 2, David speaks of the wicked as those who pursue and persecute the poor. They take advantage of whoever they can. They scheme and devise plans against them. And they do so freely and boldly because they do not believe that God will ever hold them accountable. We read in verse 6 that they say in their hearts, they think to themselves, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. No consequences will come. No one will know. I will never be found out. Verse 11, they convince themselves that their secret deeds are secret even from God. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden His face. He will never see it. And in verse 13, God will not call to account. There are many, many people who when they sin, they do so in such a way that they think no one will ever know about it. They do it in secret. They do it at home. They do it in the privacy 
of themselves and no one else. And they think no one sees. It's the foolishness. This is the lie that the sinful heart tells itself. God does not see. And God will not hold account. This is the pride and the boldness of the atheistic heart. None of these ideas, though, have any justification. Nothing that the wicked heart tells itself has any semblance of truth. There's no sense in which the wicked live in reality. Everything they believe is a lie. It is a denial of the created order. It's a ferocious opposing of all that is true and good and all that God has made. This is the character of the unbelieving heart that does not know Christ. This is at the root of all men who are born in Adam. Friends, this is also not just about everyone out there. This is also the nature of your own heart and my own heart whenever we sin. This is what we're doing. You may not consider yourself an intellectual atheist, but every time you transgress the Word of God, you prove yourself to be even worse than the atheist. In fact, to quote Charnock again, he says, those are more deservedly termed atheists who acknowledge a God and walk as if there were none than those, if there can be any such, who deny a God and walk as if there were none. What wretchedness is exposed within us when we who have tasted the goodness of God and have embraced Christ as Savior and who confess that He died for me, that my sins are what placed Him upon the cross, that in His mercy and grace He's washed me of my sin. What level of wretchedness do we have to have when knowing the goodness of God, we knowingly transgress His Word? That's a profound level of depravity. The practical atheist of the old man bursts forth. It sees the forbidden fruit, and it snatches it, and it eats it, and in that very moment, we are saying there is no God. He will not hold to account. And oftentimes, oftentimes we even take that untrue statement. He will not hold to account. And we attach it to the Gospel. He will never hold me to an account because He's forgiven all my sins. 
And the inference then becomes, let us sin all the more. My sins have been forgiven. Now I can sin in abundance. How wretched is it when we attach the gospel to those lies? But that's the nature of the old man. That's the nature of the atheistic heart. And friends, lest we think that this is all about those people out there or that this describes those people across the room, every time you sin, this is what you're doing. The atheistic heart inevitably wants to burst forth. And when it does, it produces all manners of wicked fruit. It may seem for a time to be hidden because it's a root that is buried in the ground, but what it produces is what is in a man. And throughout the psalm, we see some of that fruit of this rebellious heart. Again, in verse 5, there is arrogance. All his ways are twisted. In verse 7, David speaks of the fruit of the mouth, what comes out of a person in his speech. In the verse that's quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, in that string of verses he quotes from the Psalms and from Isaiah to prove the universality of human depravity both among Jews and Gentiles. David says, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. What often happens with men when they sin, including with Christians, is that rather than obeying the word of God and confessing it, confessing that sin, and then receiving forgiveness as they turn away from it, as they repent from it, what often happens is that they lie instead to cover it up. They compound evil upon evil with deceit. You conceal it as best you can. You deceive, believing the lie of that atheistic old man that God will never see. And in that moment, the fruit of what lies beneath the surface comes out and the wicked heart is exposed. Sin cannot really be concealed. It may be hidden from the eyes of men for a period of time, but it inevitably burst forth. It has to. It cannot help itself. It will lie dormant in secret for a time as a matter of self-preservation, but it waits for the opportune time to strike. It is like a predator that crouches in high grass or camouflages itself. And like a predator, it's not as if it's gone. Right? You, you may look around in that tall grass and you don't see anything. It looks like it's clear. And then it waits. It waits until the prey lets its guard down and then it goes in for the kill. 
prayer the other day, we read from John Owen, another Puritan who spoke of sin as being, quote, never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet. And its waters are for the most part deep when they are still. And so he implores the Christian that even if you think your sin is gone, no. Every single day, you must be about the work of killing it. He says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. The practical atheistic heart is not altogether gone in the Christian Its power has been broken. Its guilt has been atoned for. But as long as we are in this flesh and as long as we await glory with the Savior and the resurrection to come, we must be about the daily work of killing our sin. And for the practical atheist, the wicked man who does not know Christ at all, who is even at this moment rejecting Him. The warning of this psalm is that no matter how great your hatred for God is, or how much you tell yourself that there is no God, and that God doesn't see, and that God is dead, or that God will never hold to account, the warning is that God is King. And what comes with that is a whole host of implications. God is not into democracy. He's a monarch. And as a monarch, he carries out all the different branches of government. And as king, one of those is judge. What is wrong, what is evil, What is unjust is brought before him, and he is the one who carries out the judgment. And because he is king, he listens to the complaints and the cries of his people, and he carries out justice, and his justice will never overlook you. You can tell yourself. You'll never find out. But the warning here and elsewhere throughout Scripture, throughout the Psalms, is that God is king. And he will hold to account. Which leads to a second observation that I want to make in this psalm. Which is about the weapon that will bring the practical atheist to an end. All throughout this psalm, of course, David is speaking about the devastation that the wicked has caused on the earth. In their pride and in their scheming, they destroy, murder, slander, produce all manners of injustice and unrighteousness. It produces the kind of world that we live in, where there is affliction. There's people causing the affliction and who believe that they will get away with it. There's bloodshed. But there is a weapon that the wicked know nothing about. They know about swords. They know about deceit. But they don't know 
They have no experiential knowledge of the most dangerous weapon at all, which is prayer. The petition to God for God to act. And this is what we see David using, if you will, wielding in verses 12 to 15. In response to the wicked covering the earth, what does David do? He draws the sword of prayer and he cries out, Arise, O Lord! O God, lift your hand, forget not the afflicted. And then he asks this rhetorical question. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? And I say it's rhetorical because he then explains why it's such a foolish thought. He says of God, but you do see. You do see. For you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. He is describing the character and justice of God. God is not a God who allows sin and evil to go unpunished because that would make Him sinful. That would make Him unrighteous. He notes it. He records it for His just judicial case against them. And on this basis, David then utters this last petition. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. No more. It's gone. You deal with all of it. Judge all of it. Bring your righteous hand down on evil. This is his prayer. And this, this prayer is the most dangerous weapon that could be wielded against the wicked. A bomb can destroy the innocent and the wicked alike. But God's judgments are precise. And they are perfect. And the exact measurement of judgment that sin deserves is the measurement that God brings. His justice is what ultimately brings the destruction to the evildoer and is what saves the righteous who trust in God. The wicked may believe that their sins will never be found out, but they do not want to be the target of these words. Because when the righteous cry out to God, God hears their prayers and He answers them, especially when they are praying in accordance with His Word. In fact, there's an image in Revelation chapter 5 that describes the prayers of the saints as incense from a, a golden censer that is offered up to God. 
And an angel takes the fire from the censer and he casts it on the earth, which then brings about the judgments of God. It's as if God's judgments against sin and evil comes as a response to the righteous prayers of the saints that have been offered to Him. And when He determines the time, He gives the command, cast the censer to the earth, and the judgments follow. The weapon that the people of God use in their fight against sin and evil is not a sword or any weapon made with hands. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, as Paul says. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And as such, the weapon that we use or at least one of the weapons that we use, and one of the most powerful in our fight is that of prayer. We call upon God to carry out His Word and to fulfill His promises and to execute His righteous will. And in doing this, we call upon God to give us victory over our own sin and to bring about the end of the wicked on earth. Which leads us lastly to the final, the final word in this psalm, which has to do with the end of the practical atheist. What will come of the wicked man who remains in his wickedness, and what will be the end of all sin? We read in verses 16 to 18, the Lord is king forever and ever. Or as the Septuagint puts it as a verb, the Lord will reign forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. The first verse of this particular section is quoted again at a very pivotal moment in Scripture. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 to 19, what we read from earlier, we are given a vision of the final victory and judgment of the Lord. God is being worshipped. The thanks is being lifted up to Him because the day of His righteous wrath has come. The time for the dead to be judged has arrived. The time for the rewarding of His servants and prophets and saints has come. The time when He destroys the destroyers of the earth has come. And because of this, He is being praised. And loud voices in heaven are being heard shouting, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And then as Psalm 10 says, and He shall reign forever and ever. 
Christ has, of course, already been exalted at the right hand of God where He sits on the throne of Zion. But a day is also coming. A day that is called the day of His wrath. And when that day comes, the nations will perish from all of His land. That is to say that all those who are on the outside of the gates of Jerusalem all those who are sworn enemies of God and who oppose His Christ will perish. All those who have not joined themselves to Israel and to Israel's King, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Son of God and the Son of Man, will be called to account on the basis of their wicked deeds and they will then all know that there is a God. And His name is Yahweh. And His Son is Jesus the King. The end of the wicked will not be prosperity or long life. What they tell themselves, I will never be held to an account. There will never be any adversity. Will be a lie that comes crashing down. And though they may prosper now, they will perish forever. And this stands as a warning written thousands of years ago, but as relevant today as then, that if you stand on the outside of Christ, and if you don't humble yourself and repent of your sin and turn to the King for forgiveness, you will find yourself perishing in the way of the ungodly. This is a statement that has to do with the ultimate end of all things. And it is given for all men to hear now so that they might humble themselves and come to the King. The king at this moment is being merciful to all men. He is sending his gospel of grace forward in all the lands. He is summoning all people everywhere to repent and turn, excuse me, from their sins. And he promises that if they do, they will be forgiven. They will know His grace. They will not know His wrath. They will not know His judgments. They will know His grace. Because the penalty, the penalty for their sin will have been paid already through Christ. The offer that is present for the wicked now is to turn from your wickedness and so be saved. But if that offer is rejected, this is the end. In the day of wrath, there will be only wrath and no mercy. This also stands as well as a promise to His people. To those who have trusted in the Lord. To those who have turned from their wickedness. And who day after day are continuing to fight that fight against the enemy of the old man who are battling against their sin, who have been sealed by the Spirit. This is a promise that goes to His people as well. 
that though you may be afflicted now, that though there may be times of trouble now that seems as if God is at a distance, God is a just God, and He is a just King, and He will hear the cries of His afflicted. He will not let the prayers of His saints go answered. But once He has taken note of all of the sin and evil that is worthy of His judgment, once it has reached its, fu- its fullness, you might even say as, as he had said to, as God had said to Abraham long ago about the Amorites, once the fullness of their sin comes to a completion, then his wrath will come. And so it stands for us now to wait, to fight the battle against sin and evil now, but to ultimately wait and hope in that ultimate day to come when God will establish His justice in the land and the rebellious nations will perish and His kingdom will be established forever and ever and ever. And so we trust in Him and we give our cries to Him knowing that He will answer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, in your mercy and grace, you have given us your word, and your word is like a light that shines in a dark place, and in your grace, you have opened our eyes to see our sin. Even as we look at this very psalm here, as we are reminded of even Paul's words in Romans 3, we are included among those who are under sin. In your grace, you have given to us your Son, that our sins may be forgiven and we may be renewed and restored and day after day cleansed, so that the old man of wickedness and evil may not be the one who dominates in our life, that we may truly be set free we may be able to wage a righteous war against our sin and have victory in Christ. And you promise us as well that as we await for the coming of Christ again, this will happen because you are a God who keeps your promises. And so we can lift our cries, we can lift our petitions to you knowing that you will answer them. And for this, We are grateful. And so we ask that you would humble us, Lord, and teach us your ways. Cause us to walk in holiness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.